Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Unbound and Rewound Horror Podcast, where we dive deeper into every horror book and movie for a closer look at their bone-chilling anatomy. I am Avery, your queerfully, fearfully host. If you're just joining us, welcome to Camp Unbound and Rewound. (laughs) Last week, our camp orientation included sleepaway camp and a look into its intersectionality with the trans and queer community. Of course, phones aren't allowed at camp, but I'll allow it if you need to catch up. That episode is alive and waiting for your ears. We're in the second week of summer camp, but the frights have only just begun. Does everyone have their roasting sticks and hot dogs? Tonight's campfire story is going to be a good one. Make sure you're following me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Your Horror Podcast for the latest horror content and podcast updates, such as what to expect for every new episode. I come to you all with really good news. Um, I recently applied to be a Fangoria affiliate and I was accepted, like, almost right off the bat. Yeah, and I'm choosing to see that as a good thing and not just like a like an automated thing. <laughs> but either way, I'm so excited because that means so many more opportunities have opened up for this podcast um for you all as well because hello the discounts that you can get if you're a fangoria fan if you're not a fangoria fan learn to be one because if you're a horror fan you should be a fangoria fan you know um so yeah you will hear that ad dispersed throughout my episodes moving forward and it's a it's a cute little ad it's like i mean i know i have my other ad that plays right before every episode but like this is this is my own thing you know separate from that that one I have a I have a script that I have to read but this one is like I made that up I made that up and like you all get incentivized with for it so yeah very excited for what that has to offer me and what that will look like moving forward but that's all the good news I bring to you but good news nonetheless Um, Before we get any deeper into this week's episode, a lot has come out in the past week. So what are we streaming? What are we reading? And what are we watching? Insidious 5, Chapter 5 came out, The Red Door, and I binged Insidious 1, 2. I started 3, couldn't get through it. (laughs) Not because it's bad, just because I fell asleep. You really only need to watch 1 and 2 because the fifth one picks up where the second one left off. If you are interested in hearing my entire review for that movie, it's on my TikTok and my Instagram and of course on Letterboxd as well. Other than that, I started The Horrors of Dolores Roach, which is on Prime Video. That's a pretty good show, and it takes place in Washington Heights, New York, and very centered on Hispanic culture. Think of, like, Sweeney Todd, very similar to Sweeney Todd. I want to say, honestly, like, if Sweeney Todd and In the Heights were to have a baby, that's what this would be. Very, very good show so far. And they play the Sweeney Todd, like, song throughout the show, which is, like, such a cute little Easter egg. Um, so that's, like, a horror show that's currently, that I'm currently watching. Um, I'm all caught up on Cruel Summer, trying to get through the bear, 
have I watched oh I recently watched Hard Candy for like the second time but the first time was a really long time ago so the second time was kind of like my first time anyways because I forgot almost everything about it but it was really good Patrick Wilson is such a great actor um and I I, I also saw an interview with him recently that I think it was in promotion for Insidious but he was talking about his role in Hard Candy and how I think at the time uh, David Slade who was the director for for Hard Candy I think like his directorial style or just the way that movie was shot and edited I think it got maybe some criticism and Patrick Wilson kind of defended it because he was like after you direct a movie you kind of realize the things that you're working with and the things that are working against you and what David Slade was able to produce was phenomenal and fun fact David Slade also directed Eclipse Twilight Eclipse which is insane but also kind of makes sense think like considering the the directorial style and the way that he loves to use colors um and so yeah we do love a multi-talented director (laughs) other than that I picked up clown in a what is it clown in a cornfield clown in the cornfield uh, the book that I was previously reading before this week's book that um I was reading I also got I got an advanced reader copy of a book called Dead of Winter so very excited to start reading that as well you know I love a good winter horror story movie whatever it is I love it I'm gonna eat it up every time um, I do have to rewatch they slash them because that is the episode I'm doing next week um keep that on the hush hush but yeah so that's everything that i'm streaming reading and watching make sure that you let me know what you are streaming reading and watching because i am very interested i want to know these things i want to know you all you can let me know in the um q a portion of this episode or you can reach out to me on tiktok instagram twitter or threads come on now I started a Threads, and it's kind of fun on there. Of course, you can find me on Threads via my Instagram. But yeah, reach out to me, talk to me, because you all have some very good movie opinions, and I'm always interested in hearing them. All right, so this week is not a movie. We are not covering a movie. We are covering a book. This episode is for my bibliophiles and cinephiles alike throwback um if you are a movie nerd who loves a little good book this episode is for you if you are a bookworm who enjoys horror this episode is for you if you are a bookworm who enjoys an occasional movie of course this this episode is for you too like this is where we intersect this is where we all come together i honestly do not do a lot of book episodes because it does take me a while to get through a book i I hate to admit it, and I'm not always a slow reader. It just depends on the book, and it depends on what else is going on in life. But I'm so happy that I can present this to you all today because I do feel like I neglect I neglect my bookworms a little bit, and I'm so sorry for that, y'all. But I really do hope to get back on track with like my one book a month type of thing. Um, fingers crossed that I can maintain that. But if I can't, please just stick it out with me. Please just know, like, this is a one-woman show. I'm trying my, my very, very hardest. This week's book that we are talking about 
is The Last Time I Lied by Riley Sager. And, of course, in theme with the whole summer camp thing we've got going on right now. It was written by Riley Sager, originally published July 3rd of 2018 with Penguin Random House. The synopsis of this book goes a little something like this. 15 years ago, three teenage girls, Vivian, Natalie, and Allison, snuck out of their cabin at Camp Nightingale and were never seen again. Now, the wealthy, well-connected camp owner is reopening Nightingale with a staff populated by the prior generation of campers, providing plenty of potential witnesses and suspects. Within these witnesses and suspects is Emma. Emma is our protagonist. She has plenty of motive to be a suspect, but also a witness at the same time. This is the kind of book that is meant to throw off every single expectation you have. It wants you to think one way, but then throw a curveball last minute. Um, The inspiration for this book came from the 1979 Australian book-to-screen adaptation of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Riley Sager sourced pieces of Emma's artistic ability from his late aunt, who also was an artist. Only about one-third of his first draft made it into the final manuscript after revisions, which is kind of normal, to be honest. I mean, your first draft, like, you, sometimes people have, like, five, five drafts before they have the final thing. Um, Though he was happy with the end result and had no regrets with it, he did hope to draw a bridge between his first book, which was Final Girls. I did an episode on that a few months ago, maybe several months ago, but you may be able to find it if you scroll down um, or up on my podcast page. So he wanted to draw a bridge between that book and this one by including a character from his first story into this one. However, as he was writing, it just didn't really come naturally to him, so he wasn't able to make it happen, but he still has aspirations to do it in a future book of his. I wanted to start this discussion by talking about some comps, as in like things to compare this book to. Sometimes I think having comps is it makes it easier for people who haven't read the book to understand what it's about, the tone of the book, um, what's going on in the book. And so I chose two. One of them was Heather's and the other is Sleepaway Camp 2. Heather's, I got such a huge like vibe for when I was reading this book. The dynamic between Emma and the three older girls when she is staying at the camp at like 13 years old reminds me so much of Veronica and the Heathers in the 80s dark comedy movie. And so like the synopsis, which copied from the internet, the synopsis didn't really give you a very good description of like who Emma is in relations to this this book and this narrative. But like Emma was staying at Camp Nightingale The cabins are named after, like, leaves or trees or something like that. So her cabin was Dogwood. She stayed in there with Vivian, Natalie, and Allison, and then they went missing. But she got very, very close to Vivian, and Vivian got very, very close to her. But Vivian also was, like, your stereotypical mean girl. So, like, Vivian definitely reminded me of, like, 
the head of the table, Heather, in the movie Heathers. And Veronica reminded me of Emma in that, like, lost puppy dog kind of way, wanting to be cool, wanting guidance, and seeking it from the people, or in this case, the girls who seem to have all of that and more. Sleepaway Camp 2, which, I mean, Sleepaway Camp has just been on my mind since last week's episode, but the disappearances that occur in The Last Time I Lied remind me of those in The Summer Slasher, in the sequel, uh, when one of the campers comes back to her cabin in Sleepaway Camp 2, she finds her cabin mates to have disappeared. She doesn't know why, although Angela is like, oh yeah, they went home. They were sent home, but it's just like they're leaving at such a large rate that she becomes suspicious and she does her own digging to find out where they really went and Emma going back to Camp Nightingale kind of goes in with this intention of trying to investigate and figure out what happened to those three girls when she stayed there as a kid. This podcast episode this book review is going to be spoiler free um there are some things that people may deem to be spoilers i personally don't think that they're spoiling much so listen at your own discretion i guess i should say but i really tried to make it spoiler free so that i can properly guide you i i just think that like with book reviews it's a lot i don't want to say riskier but like Um, It's a lot more limiting to do a spoiled book review because you can watch a movie in an hour of your day, but some people can't read a book in a full week. So it's like, I hope that this episode offers you um, some guidance in terms of what you should read next. If this is a book you should pick up, if it's been on your to-be-read list for a really long time and you've just kind of passed by it, passed by it. Hopefully, this episode will will help you figure out whether you should pick it up or keep it on your to-be-read or take it off altogether. <laughs> Starting with the themes, because you know I love a good theme. I always have to talk about them. The biggest theme in this book is guilt. Emma suffers with multiple things as a result of A, her parents, and two, what happened at the camp. And also what happened after the camp, uh, she, she struggled with some mental health and as a painter, she uses her artistic ability to kind of cope with everything that happened as well. The biggest thing that she, one of the biggest things that she feels, but also is just a very large theme within the book, is guilt. After camp, when Emma was 13 years old, she makes no effort to stay in contact with anyone from camp. Though others make attempts by adding her on Facebook and to a camp Facebook group, she declines them all. Emma seems very avoidant of everything regarding camp. And I see this as a similar action to like avoiding eye contact when lying to someone. Both can be very guilt-driven and for Emma's case, partially traumatic too, or like a trauma response of just like, that was a very bad time in her life and she doesn't want any reminders of it because it yeah it was traumatic for her but also she does feel a large sense of guilt she even states in chapter three that all of the reasons why she thinks she shouldn't return to camp nightingale boil down to the crushing guilt she feels as emma is becoming an adult building her career and whatnot she ends up being an artist a painter in her adult life 
but her first gallery opening in the first painting series that she unleashes is of the girls of the missing girls from her time at camp when she completed her first painting of the series it kept her awake until 2 a.m something about it didn't sit right with her she realized the problem with the painting was that you could see them and she said quote that was the problem She then covered their eyes with tree branches and hid them amongst the greenery of the forest in this scene she painted until they were only noticeable by pieces of their dresses or patches of their skin. Was this can be read as Emma's grief manifesting but also her guilt? Their mysterious disappearance left so many questions still unanswered. It's clear that Emma hasn't properly grieved. However, she alludes to the idea that she is at fault for their disappearance. So, by covering their eyes, she may not feel like she's under the heat of their gaze. It's kind of like, yeah, when when you avoid eye contact with someone who's looking at you because they're suspicious of you and you feel guilty of it. Um, it's, it's kind of that same principle as well. Something else that Emma often feels in this book is grief slash mourning or the lack of mourning. Whenever the girls disappear, everything is unanswered. She can't properly heal and mourn because it is just one big mystery. And so she has a lot of unresolved grief um, in, in that department. But also, Vivian has an older sister who passed away. And when we meet Vivian, she still actively mourns her sister And Emma seems to mourn her parents. Though they're still around, they have become more withdrawn as she's gotten older. Um, And, like, sending her off to camp is one of the ways in in which they just, like, don't really want to put the effort into entertaining her, spending time with her. And I think that, I mean, I think you can mourn someone who is still alive. That's something I definitely believe in. And so in Grief and Mourning, you look for community and other human connection to supplement what's been lost. This adds a different layer to their relationship besides the way that it may be presented as the standard mean girl in Lost Puppy Trope, kind of how I mentioned with the, with the Heathers movie. And I liked this added layer because I feel like it did add substance to their relationship. Another theme that comes up very frequently in this book is trust. On the topic of Vivian, uh, Vivian calls for everyone, but especially Emma, to trust her. It's something she always is saying, oh my gosh, just trust me, just trust me. As the leader of this little group and as, you know, most kind of stereotypical tropes in this sense, um, the leader is the one who everyone has to trust to a degree. However, she's constantly toying with that trust through a game of two truths and a lie. It's stated as her favorite game. She tells Emma that you can learn more about a person through their lie than their truths. Throughout this book, you you find yourself um, distrusting almost all of the characters, really. You distrust Vivian at certain points, but there's also a lot of suspicion regarding Emma and Franny, and Theo, and Chet. Franny is the camp counselor. Theo is her oldest son. Chet is her youngest son. At the time in which Emma attends camp, Chet is like 10, Theo is 19, 
at the time that she returns, Theo is like, I don't know, 40 something and Chet is like mid 20s, late 20s, something like that. With these dynamics, Emma finds herself in compromising positions towards the end and struggles to figure out who she can really trust. That goes back to what I was saying in terms of this book just throwing curveballs at you the entire time. You truly don't know who you can trust. Emma herself is an unreliable narrator at certain points, especially after finding installed cameras outside of her cabin. She feels like she's constantly being watched. And the fact that Franny, Theo, and Chet felt the need to install those cameras outside of her cabin to watch her shows that, okay, maybe she shouldn't be trusted, especially whenever they reveal her mental health issues and her stay at the hospital. Obviously, like, that doesn't make somebody clinically clinically unwell and unsafe, but the way in which they talk about it and their suspicions towards Emma, it kind of throws you off balance as well. With the camera and aside from the camera, there's lots of mentions of voyeurism in this story from Emma peeping in on Theo when she was at camp originally to someone peeping on her, the camera, and she just also constantly feels like she's being watched when she's alone. These last two themes, um, they, they came up every now and then. I do feel like they, there wasn't a major connection to them in the end, but I did think they were still worthy of a discussion or to be a part of this discussion. So the first one is wealth. The book discusses the history of the land that Camp Nightingale sits on. This is land that has been passed down through the generations of Franny's family. So now she owns it as she is the camp director. And the history is revealed to be that of an old mental hospital that the wealthy used to take advantage of. There are several mentions about how Camp Nightingale is for rich girls. Emma states her and her friends call it Rich Bitch Camp. Emma herself was only able to go after her grandma passed away and left a lump sum of money to her. However, when Franny opens the camp back up, she states the camp will be merit-based instead of monetary. Franny's generational wealth is something that afforded her a great life, which she speaks on frequently. After the tragedy at her camp, she reveals that her wealth took a major hit. It's also brought up in the in like the same context that Franny's family came into their wealth by displacing others and deforesting land. And I do wish that that had been a bigger conversation and not just like a background actor in the narrative because I feel like it could have been tied in very nicely, but it just felt like something that was added to to add, you know, like um to add substance to this character of Franny. Another theme that I've wanted to play a major role and really didn't was gender. When we get to my my dislikes, I do touch on gender a little bit, but in terms of the narrative, it also was kind of just thrown in there to add like another layer to the narrative or to the women of the story, but it didn't really tie into anything as much as it should have. When the history of Camp Nightingale is exposed to have been an old psychiatric facility, it's also mentioned that it was a place specifically for women. 
This introduces context of women's mental health in the 1800s and how it was used to keep women subordinate. The book states, which is exactly as men wanted it, it's how they managed to keep women down. Don't like something they've said? Call them crazy and ship them off to the loony bin. This speaks to women's freedom of speech and believability. In horror, women are rarely heard when they point out that something is wrong. Of course, the same thing happens to Emma, and she's checked off as being mentally unwell. Her mental health records are used as supporting evidence for this case as well. Those were all the themes that I wanted to point out. There were, like, some other tiny ones, but I just felt like there wasn't enough um, meat in the narrative to include them. And I honestly almost didn't include the gender and wealth themes either because it just, like, like I said, it, there wasn't enough substance in the narrative for them to, to seem more influential, I guess, but I still felt like they were necessary to bring up. Moving on to my likes, something that I really did like about this, um, well, okay, let me, let me say this. When I reviewed Riley Sager's first book, Final Girls, that was my first Riley Sager book. I do think that I kind of tore that book apart um, for various reasons. And I, in, well, I'll, <laughs> I'll save that for when I talk about my dislikes. When I first discovered Fangoria's magazines, I was a kid in the adult section of the bookshop. Since 1979, Fangoria has been the authority in the world of contemporary horror. What started as a print media company has since become a one-stop shop for horror merch and now a production studio. For being a Your Horror listener, you can stock up on your horror needs or start your magazine subscription with code YourHorrorPodcast or by clicking the link in the show notes below. Get 20% off store-wide with code YourHorrorPodcast. Now back to the episode. Of course, that was like almost a year ago, probably was a year ago. And so it's, I'm a new person, you know, and I can see the good in something while also seeing the bad in something. So I do have a lot of likes, but I also do have a lot of dislikes. Um, my first like of this book was the readability. Like I said, this was only my second book of Riley Sager's and both books the final girls and this book were easy to get through. He has a way of drawing you in and creating an intoxicating atmosphere. Every chapter keeps you on your toes, whether that's with the action or just the structure of the plot. The structure is something else that I really liked about the book. Within it, there are multiple timelines, and I think sometimes having multiple timelines in the story doesn't always work. If you saw my review on Plain Bad Heroines, whether you saw it on Instagram or TikTok, you know exactly what I mean. However, the story was structured with one present timeline and one past timeline. The placement in which Sager decided to circle these into each chapter made sense. You would get a short passage at the end of each chapter, not even necessarily each chapter, but like every other chapter, um, with the subtitle 15 years ago. The following chapter would refer to those things in the past that were previously mentioned. It was precise without holding back the important details needed for the context. Sager didn't originally want to include these flashbacks either in this novel because he did that in Final Girls and he wanted something different. However, he found that the past kept coming back up as he wrote, so in the end, he decided to write the flashbacks in. 
This structuring also acted as a sort of foreshadowing. Having known what happened in the past, you were able to pick up on the synonymous events taking place in the present. They were acting as breadcrumbs leading you to the truth. The very first point that I started noticing this breadcrumbs was with the sentence, There was a drought happening the first time I was here too. It didn't rain once in two weeks, in chapter 5, once Emma gets to camp. It begins to snowball when she's placed in the same cabin with three girls similar in age to the three Emma knew when she was 13. The way Sager did breadcrumb details throughout the story contributed to my desire to read further into the story. It would be a little remark here or a small detail there that made me pull my magnifying glass out. Something else that I really enjoyed about this book was the emotion. Sager's writing is very strong when it comes to the setting, imagery, and making them interact with the tone. The camp setting already creates a nostalgic atmosphere, but the tragedy of the events that took place taints those memories and tone. Every time Emma finds herself in a similar position from her past, it contributes to the poignant narrative. In chapter 10, Emma describes the sky as, quote, muted and melancholy and just the tiniest bit hopeful, unquote, after stating how familiar it looked and similar to the one she includes in her painting of the girls who went missing. I also liked the ending and, you know, of course I won't, I won't say too much on it, but parts of it were predictable while other parts of it weren't. I do feel like it made use of themes to tie up the narrative. However, I think it would have been more shocking and gagging if the story ended with the twist and not the aftermath. Now, if you've read it, you may know what I'm talking about. If you have yet to read it, keep that in mind. Moving on to my dislikes. And okay, so I actually, if y'all have ever heard of like beige flags, right? Beige flags, it's like, it's not something that's good or bad. Um, or like, it's not something that you strongly dislike it's strong, or strongly like. It's just like, it's in the middle. It's like, it's like, eh, I could go without it. But like, you know, it's not terrible. So I have a few beige dislikes because, uh, yeah, they're kind of in the middle for me. I felt like they needed to be brought up, um, but like they're not necessarily in a negative light, if that makes sense. So the first beige dislike was the character arc. The arc of Emma and that of Quincy in Final Girls seem to be similar. While I like it for the sake of connecting the two books together, I wonder if it's a comfort thing. Writing from a perspective outside of your own can be a challenge. Often you may find yourself relying on those archetypes or formulas that you've created or observed in the past. So I just feel like I wanted to see something a little bit different from Emma. And I I feel like I could sense those similarities to Quincy from the final girls. So that was just something that was, you know, not disappointing, but just like, it really didn't stand out to me. Um, another beige dislike. Okay, well, okay. So, <laughs> I see this book like I see an entertaining Lifetime movie or a low-grade horror film. It's entertaining to read, but it doesn't have much substance. There were points that fell flat in moments of convenience. However, I do think the overarching conflict kept me hooked enough that I overlooked these for the time being. That being said, I don't always like the way this author writes his women characters. 
These characters are no doubt written from the mind of a man, and it's not necessarily that he over-sexualizes them, he just misinterprets our emotions and experiences, while also almost infantilizing the, the characters. For example, Emma realizes her feelings of desire for a teenage boy at camp, that teenage boy being Theo. After spying on him and admitting these feelings to Vivian, she cries. I personally have never known of a girl who's felt that ashamed of their desire. Feeling ashamed of this desire and like, I don't know, it's, it almost just feels like it would be different coming from a woman. And that's how most of these are. It's, if a woman wrote it, it would be like, yeah, okay, that's your experience. But coming from a man, it's like, what experience is this coming from? Or is this how you want girls and women to feel and, re and respond to experiences? I also don't like the way Sager wrote Emma's relationship to Theo. Particularly, I don't like the kiss between them. I don't think it should have happened. I think it's unbelievable that he wouldn't try to stop it, especially with the age difference and power imbalance. Like, it's so obvious that he could see it coming, and you're telling me that he didn't put his hand out to stop her? He still let her kiss him and then let her back away, and then, you know, to then let her down? Like, that's that just does not seem realistic to me. His way of writing the modern teenage girls in this book um, also shows his lack of awareness in modern teen culture. I can assume Emma was 13 in the early 2000s, which makes her a millennial, and the teen girls are Gen Z. The exchange they have in chapter 6 feels more like an interaction with a Gen X person instead. Emma says, I don't want to cramp your style. When the girl's grown, she says, what, don't kids say that anymore? As if vibe wasn't a word? I've met millennials who feel territorial over the term vibe because they used it before Gen Z did. And so I just, every time that these characters would interact and like Emma would show her age through like the dialogue, it would always pull me out of it because I almost wonder, did Riley Sager not do the math in which like these characters were born or like is the timeline in which like I just yeah it just didn't really connect with me um there's also this line that he wrote which rubbed me the wrong way for a little context of this quote uh Emma is looking at a book of the it's like a informational book on the 1800s and women and psychiatric facility care right okay so the quote goes every time i find myself gasping at a new horror i realize how lucky i am had i been born a hundred years earlier i would have become one of these women misunderstood and suffering i talk a lot about um like male directors and writers producing and you know creating movies from a female perspective and always just like it missing the mark for me but I do want to, like, I want to clarify that in saying I think writers, authors, and screenwriters should have the freedom to write from varying pers perspectives, but I feel like it should be an accurate perspective at that. If you don't have some sort of quality assurance process, 
it can come across as a lazy take on what you believe it's like to be this kind of person. To me, this line feels like he's almost pointing at women and saying, you should be lucky. Women are still experiencing violence today, so this line just feels a little tone deaf, to be honest. And, you know, like, it's also contradictory because you're saying, oh, like, your character, let me, let me say that, like, separating the author from the character, but, like, your character is saying, I would have become one of these women, misunderstood and suffering, but it seems like you misunderstand women as an author writing a woman as a character. (sighs) I don't know, that's, that's all I have to say on that. Um, I know that I had a lengthy dislike list, but I did write, I did rate this book a four stars because I do, I, I, I don't think I went into it with very high expectations. There are some books, especially books that are hyped on TikTok or Instagram or just within the book slash horror community. I will have high expectations if I hear a lot of people talking about how good it is. But I don't really hear a lot of people talking about Riley Sager, especially this book I don't hear a lot of people talking about. And so I just kind of went in um, open-minded, quite frankly, and ready to receive however, how whatever it brought to me. And so I was happy with it at the end. I was able to read it very fast. And that's always something that I value is a book that has a good uh, readability to it. As someone who finds it difficult to um, stick with a book if it doesn't grab my attention within the first, like, three chapters. Now, I do give books a little bit, like, I give them more of a chance than they deserve oftentimes. That's what I do with Plain Bad Heroines. And every time, I get so far in a book and I'm like, I feel like I wasted so much time. I should have just dropped it, like, at the very beginning. But I always just feel like, okay, it's going to get better okay, it's going to get better. And then sometimes it never does. And I've wasted so much reading time. But like, so I, I, that's one thing that I really enjoyed about this book, like I said, and that's why I rated it so high. It was just a fun book. It's like the, it's like the summer slash is like Friday the 13th. It's like you watch it for fun. You don't watch it to, to experience true, good, real cinema, you know? Yeah. Now I'm gonna hop off my soapbox. (laughs) I rated this book a 4 out of 5 stars on Goodreads. If you're interested in seeing my written review on there, you can find it at AveryCOF, same as my Letterboxd, um, if you happen to follow me on there. And of course, make sure that you follow me on all my other social medias to stay up to date on what's coming next. You can find me at Your Horror Podcast on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and now threads on threads i'm a little sillier and goofier than like on any other platform well tiktok tiktok i can be a little silly goofy sometimes but like threads i really like that's that's where i'm my i'm my most vulnerable (laughs) i am just i'm just having um enrichment time that is my enclosure and i'm having enrichment time there so if you if you want to see an unfiltered avery then by all means follow me on threads i'd love to have you Next week, I will be reviewing They Slash Them, and very excited because I will be having a guest on the show with me, and uh, 
very i'm just yeah i always love having guests always love talking about movies i haven't seen this movie i mean i have to for the podcast episode but like before that i haven't seen this i hadn't seen this movie they hadn't seen this movie so i'm excited to to talk with them about it so yeah make sure you're following me so you can see who the guest is um because that is a mystery thanks so much for tuning in to this episode as I said in the beginning, make sure you check out Fangoria, everything they have to offer, and don't forget to use my discount code, Your Horror Podcast. That's U R Horror Podcast for twenty percent off of anything you purchase. Thanks so much for tuning in again, and I'll catch you next week. Bye.